Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello and welcome Hello. to another one of our summer episodes. So our guest this week is Alistair Campbell, who you have known for for a long time, more than 20 years, and he's written a book. Uh, it's it's uh, his life story really through the prism of his own mental health, and he writes very openly about that. He's made documentaries about it, and it's, it's something he's campaigned a lot on recently. I'm curious to know that in those 20 years, uh, when you were working alongside him especially, uh, how aware of what he was living with were you, Ed? You know, I don't think I was aware. I mean, certainly not aware when he was working for Tony Blair. I mean, I was aware that he was a character, a very driven person. Um, but, 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 you know, he was quite, he, well, you would know, I would never have known really. I mean, I, I know that sounds a bit cliched, but I don't think I would have known about his depression. And it only became, I only became properly aware of it sort of think, I think afterwards. I think people who'd known him before that knew about it. Um, and obviously people who knew him better than me. But um, but I think he kept it rather he kept it rather hidden. Well, that, that that is an interesting indication of how times have changed, even in in recent history. So, our guest this week, uh, we hope you enjoy this conversation. It's Alistair Campbell. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are talking to the author of a new book, Living Better. It's Alistair Campbell. Hello. How are you? Uh, we're, we're all right. I was wondering, you know, given that your long history with Ed, if you had a first memory of ever having come across him. Oh, you fucker. 
You can't swear on your podcast. He does it all I'm the sorry, time. Sorry, no, sorry. Mouthed. Yeah. Um, oh God, I've got a lot of memories of Ed. I think my very my very first clear memory of Ed was Gordon Brown had this sort of really well. He had a lot of weird offices, Gordon did, but he had one that was in a sort of cloister type place. Oh yeah, I think he'd been moved out of his main. It's office. called the cloisters. I is think. it called the cloisters? Is it or something or something? Well, it was yeah. it was it was in there and. Ed was like sort of, I mean, Gordon, I can remember the, one of the first times I met Gordon being before I knew Ed and Gordon being in this room with like 50 books in a pile that, you know, most of which he would have read by the end of the day, I suspect. And Ed was a very, was a sort of similar kind of experience where he, he was, he had this desk and he was just sort of, you just swamped by books and and paper. It was tidier than Gordon's desk, I have to say. But so that's, well, that's my a low bar. That is a very <laughs> low bar. Uh, but so that was that was it. That was my first. I, I, knew... I was also. I was also. I then did take on. I did develop a particular representative nature, well, didn't he, I? He, he's he's given did. a very specific title in the book. Yeah. Well, Ed. Ed was called the emissary from planet fuck, <laughs> and the reason for that title was when. Tony once said that, well, say what you like about Ed, but he's the only one of Gordon's team who doesn't tell me to fuck off all the time. You know what? The funny thing is, Alistair, I didn't know that was the reason for the nickname until I read this book. I I didn't know. I just, I don't, I didn't kind of What did you know. think it was? Just that we thought Gordon uh, Brown was planet fuck? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. We thought Gordon Brown was planet Gordon, and we thought Gordon Brown at times was planet, let's try and get rid of Tony. But it was actually the fact that Gordon would often say to Tony, oh, Tony, just fuck off. And Ed Balls would quite, was quite fond of saying, oh, fuck off, Tony. Whereas you were always I moderate, see, moderately, I poli- see. moderately polite. No, I was, a, I was definitely a bridge builder. Jeff, let's, let's get back to the book. Yeah, actually, just um, thinking about that, one of the things you write about in the book is having people working alongside you or, or for you who are very good at almost throwing a protective ring around you when you are having, you know, days where it is it is difficult for you in terms of mental health. I, w- I was wondering, you know, how aware people were of your your d- depression at the time you were doing that job in number 10. Uh, well, I was, obviously. Um, I think at that time, though, I mean, I'm now very, very open. The first thing I do now when I feel the depression coming on, the first thing I do, literally, as soon as it happens, I tell Fiona, I sometimes phone up David, who's my uh, psychiatrist that I see when I get really bad. Um, I'll tell my kids, actually, if they're around. Um, and But back then, I didn't really tell anybody, apart from two or three people in the office. So, for example, I mentioned in the book, Alison, my PA, I wouldn't even say to a lot, I'm feeling a bit depressed. I'd just say, listen, unless it's really important, don't put anybody through. And just, I've, you know, or I've got loads of paperwork to do, just, you know, but she'd know what was going on. And once or twice, Godric Smith, who Ed knows, who was my number two, I would tell him sometimes, and Peter Hyman actually as well, I would say, look, I'm really not in feeling in great shape. And they would just know that they kind of just had to be a bit, aware first thing but also you know lift my mood i never i had a very 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 good relationship with tony but i never really bothered him with it um but i think he always did have a sense of it because i would 
I think people know, it's like in any relationship, you know when somebody's trying to avoid you. So I was less open then than I am now, but I was open enough with the people who I felt needed to know. How good sort of... It's, or how I think you've, it seems to me to be something you've got better at the the sort of self preservation aspect of it. So you you write about Tony Blair aggressively pursuing you to take that job in the first place, and you've just spoken ab- about those campaigns of five ten years ago. I get the impression that you look after yourself mentally in a way that today you might not be pressured in the same way if you you felt like it would be detrimental to your mental health talk to talk to us a bit about how how that has changed over the years uh i'm not sure about that because i mean it's true that i lead a very different sort of life to the sort of life that i led when i was you know working alongside ed but i still because of my nature and my personality i think i still lead a very pressured existence in that because i put myself under pressure a lot but I think what's changed in me, the big, the big, big change for me was the decision. I can't even remember when it was, but it was the decision to think, I'm just going to be totally open about it to everybody. Not in a kind of, you know, look at me sort of way, but I'm just going to be open. If people say, how are you feeling? I'm going to say shit. Funny enough, the turning point, and it's funny how you get these instincts sometimes, was I did an... Um, I got approached by Mind. I talked about it somewhere, and I got approached by Mind, the mental health charity, and they said, look, we're trying to find well-known people who will talk to a, the Sunday Times magazine about depression uh, and, and, and psychosis, and would you do it? And I thought, well, I better not. I was Tony Blair's... He was Prime Minister by then. He's Tony, I was Tony Blair's spokesman. I wasn't this sort of... You know, I, I shouldn't be talking about myself in that way. But I woke up one morning, and I just thought, do you know what? I think I'll do it. And it was an instinct... And once I'd done that, and it was kind of out there, and I don't know, I've just, ever since then, if anybody's ever asked me, I just, I talk about it. And actually, as you can tell, and as you can see from the book, I like talking about mental health. I like talking about my own experiences. And I like now, I've just been through a really, you know, a really bad bout of depression um, during the whole lockdown thing. And it sort of came on me quite suddenly but I did, a tw- I did a tweet, I did a video of myself on my sofa, essentially talking to myself, to be honest, but I posted it. It got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. But the, the other thing that does, you get this sense, Ed knows this with, with Twitter, if, you're, if you've got a political profile on Twitter, it's bloody horrible, right? Most of the time you just get, you know, I get war criminal or he'll get bacon sandwich or whatever it might be. I get all this stuff, like, literally every day. But... When I did that video, it was just like, it was like there was an avalanche of people saying, oh, I'm with you, hope you get through it, thank you for being so open, really helps me. And then just going out for a walk with the dog the next day with Fiona out in, the, in Hampstead Heath, just loads of people just sort of... And that, that does help me. I find that that helps. And then the other thing that I find helps me is other people talking to me about what they're going through as well. I find that helps me in a way that I can't fully explain. But it's all down to the point about openness. Openness is the thing. There's so much to, 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 to talk about. Why don't we just helicopter out for a minute? Your first sort of, I don't know whether the episode is the right word, was in sort of 1986, I think I'm right in saying, where this really, you got really hit by the depression and, and, and so on. I mean, 
how had how do you think it shaped your life? I mean, it's been a constant. It's been a constant presence in your life, basically. Is that right? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. And funny enough, my sister Liz, who she sometimes thinks I go on about it too much and thinks that I should try to kind of you know bury it in a way. Um, but I don't want to do that because I actually think it was it was it was in many ways the defining moment for me. Um, and it, the, the, the first thing wasn't depression, it was psychosis, and it was a, it was a psychotic uh, breakdown. And, but it was the thing that made me realise I really, really, really have to change. I, I cannot go on living like this, otherwise I'm going to die. Had you been aware of it before this uh, psychotic episode in 1986? Yeah, yeah. I'd been aware and you'd of... had the depression, had you? Yeah, I'd been aware of it, but I'd been burying it in drink for sure, or work or other addictions. I'd, I'd been... Right. So I think, you know, I write in the book about when I was... And, of course, psychiatrists, they love to take you back to your childhood and all that. And I actually had a really good childhood, a happy childhood. I loved my parents, got great siblings, you know, never had to worry about abject poverty or any of that stuff. And But the, 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 the first memory, when my first encounter with my psychiatrist... And the first thing he asked me to do was to kind of almost like write out a psychological history of myself. And I'd, he asked me to do it like, it was, you know, like 100,000 words. It was like a big, big thing. And the first real memory of it was actually a, um, in Tyree in the Hebrides where my dad was from. And I got in a fight in a football match and I got really badly beaten up by this big kid called Ronnie. And I, I, I walked out back to my uncle's croft and stopped on this kind of little hilly rock thing and just sort of, you know, sat there, kind of crying my eyes out to myself, but then said to myself, you're going to have to face the world on your own. I was only about eight or nine, but I was kind of saying that. And I can remember after that, just for quite a while, feeling this just sense of being very, very low and life's a struggle. and, And I've had that intermittently all my life. And I think that was a form of depression. Um, I also think then that when I... The next big thing for me was my brother Donald when he was diagnosed with schizophrenia because, you know, that that was the other kind of absolutely defining moment in my life. I was about 18, he was 21, he was in the army, um, invalided out, and we were very close. Um, and, and, and I just became, I don't know, fascinated by mental illness, but also... I think fixated upon the idea that something like this was going to happen to me. So when it, I had the psychosis in 1986, that's what I thought it was. So it wasn't depression. It was an absolute psychotic meltdown. Um, and it's funny how politics involved. I was with Neil Kinnock. I mean, you know, you couldn't kind of make it up. And I was actually with Gordon that day as well. I was in Gordon. Neil was visiting Gordon in Rosyth Naval Dockyard. And I'll tell you, if you're going to have a nervous breakdown do not do it in the middle of a top secret naval dockyard that's where it really kind of kicked in and then by the end of the day i was in a police station then i was in a hospital these are such hard questions and difficult questions to know the answer to but you know if you think about your the thing that struck me reading the book thinking about it is how much and forgive me this is a stupid question how much is what your depression relates to what's going on in your life and how much does it just feel independent of sort of other factors that you know whether politics up down whatever you know how do you see the relationship i honestly don't know and and so to give you one example 
I was depressed on May the 1st, 1997. That should have been one of the happiest days of my life, okay? We won a landslide in a general election after working our guts out for years. There's a bit in my diaries where, I think Tony was a bit down that day as well, and when we were at Festival Hall and we were taken into this kind of, you know, green room, and Tony, I remember Tony said to me, you all right? I said, you know what, I feel like complete shit. And it was like, and I've always resented that. And 2001 was the same. But I, Tony Blair wrote about this in his book. He felt an- anxious about what lay ahead. But you're, you, 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 you're saying something slightly different, are you? Which is, it was a sort of independent, it wasn't that you were anxious about the job you were going to have to do. Or, or There was a bit of that. There was a bit of that. But no, I felt that my mood had dipped. So that, that, that would say that, it's not necessarily related, but it must be related to some extent to what's going on around you. I mean, I'll tell you interestingly about this, the depression that I went through in lockdown. I went through various phases in lockdown. I went through a kind of, you know, novelty phase. I went through a, this is, I'm quite enjoying this. I love being at home. Fiona and I were getting on really well. The dog was happy. And then I went into a minor dip and then I came out of it. I was manic for about three weeks. Literally, I was getting up before four in the morning. I'd written... 5,000 words of various things before Fiona was up. I was writing music. I was, I was off it. I was, some of it was really good. Some of the stuff was good. Some of it was bonkers. And I was. I was manic. I was out of control. I was getting out of control. And then what I know happens is then there's a crash. So the, the, the crash starts. And because this book that we're talking about was meant to be published in May, because of COVID, it was postponed to, to now, to September. And... I thought just to keep my hand in and, and sort of, you know, promote the book a bit and carry on talking about these issues, I did a series of interviews with different people over Zoom about mental health in lockdown and how they were coping. So I did lots of sports people, Gary Lineker, uh, Jamie Carragher, Ben Ainsley, the sailor, Maro Toja, the rugby player, Kelly Holmes, Deborah Meaden, I did Nicola Sturgeon, and I did David Lammy, Labour MP. And I was, so I was talking to David... And I know that David's had his problems with depression in the past, and we've talked about that before. And anyway, he said something in this interview that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. I just said to him at one point, I said, David, isn't it just absolutely doing your head in that this government is so shit at handling this crisis? And he then did this long thing, really quite... I wrote a piece for Tortoise about this, where I quoted it in full, because he basically went through what he'd been thinking in lockdown... And it concluded that the overwhelming feeling he was getting was just this feeling that the Labour Party is so far away from power and these people can do what the hell they want. And he said, what you and I do and say, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference. Now, I don't know why, but in the mood I was in, it hit me like a bullet. And I was just like, I just literally went from, you know, on my sort of one to ten scale... I was on about five and I went to about eight or nine. It should explain to people that there's a one to ten scale that you set for each day and one is good, or one is perfection. and One is perfection and ten and, is suicidal. Uh, you, you, yeah, never, yeah. Oh, you, you, you never admit a one or a ten. I, I never admit a one or a ten because one I think is, um, I think if you get totally elation, I think that's not necessarily a good thing. And, and ten to me is what you do when you kill yourself. So I get as, I get as high as nine. And... The inter- I've told David it's not his fault, right? I'm not blaming him for this. But that, for some reason, that took what was a slide into an absolute plunge. And it's, it's, 
it's interesting. I'd been manic, as I say. Does it often follow then? So the sort of you talk in the beginning of the book about demonic energy, um, but but when that demonic energy becomes sort of slightly out of control, is that then followed by the crash? Almost entirely. Almost. Almost. Almost always. Yeah. yeah. Because you see, you see this really interesting thing, which I think spoke a little bit to to me, um, uh, which is it's often when you go on holiday. That the that it that it happens. Yeah, the depression. Yeah, yeah, the depression. Sorry, yeah. Um, and is that because you just find it very? Once you stop, you know, it's like something. I mean, this may sound a bit simplistic, but it's sort of like you know, you keep the demons at bay by work and activity and so on. And we'll come on to the jam jar in a bit, but that, and then you st- you have to stop, and it's that that then makes you definitely can precipitate a crash. Definitely, and I think the other thing it does, and you know, you're. You'll relate to this as well because, you know, you've done a job where it's really, really difficult yeah. to have, have young kids. And so when I started work for Tony, Grace was a baby. Uh, Rory and Callum were, you know, small boys. And I like to think that I'm a good dad and I like to think that I'm, you know, that, uh, that Fiona's really lucked out having me alongside her and all that stuff, you know. But I think what it does is it confronts you with the fact that you know, you're not really as good as you could be. Uh, because, you know, Fiona used to have this phrase about you're here, but you're not here. And yeah. that was that was the problem. And then, so you you feel the, you still feel, and you know, look, listen, I love Tony to bits, and, 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 but you'd know what it's like, both Tony and Gordon, incredibly demanding. So Tony would regularly phone up on those holidays and saying, you know, uh, what are you thinking? Hey, and then he sort of say, "What about the conference speech? Have you sort of thought about that?" And are we getting on with? What do you think? Should we? When should we start to do a draft? And you know, you know, he's not saying do a draft. He's saying, "I know that if I say this enough, you'll do it." And so then you're thinking, "Shit, I've got to do that." And then of course, it's like weekends. I used to get weekends find weekends difficult because you'd go through the rhythm of a week, and then by Friday you think, "Oh, great, it's the weekend." But then actually the weekend was just as busy as the rest of the week. So you weren't able to do the things properly for your kids, for your family, for your football team and all the things that you actually wanted to do. And likewise with holiday, right, this is it. We're going to wait for a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, and I'm going to be absolutely there for them the whole time. And then when it happened, you weren't. So the, but, but I mean, I can see why you're judgmental about yourself and, and you are very judgmental about yourself. Uh, but, 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 but that crowding in was all, is also part of precipitating the, the depression, you think? That sort of sense of never being able to get away, never being able to stop. Oh, definitely, 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 definitely. Interesting. And yet, conversely, one of the worst depressions I ever had was when it all stopped. When I left in 2003, that was one of the worst ever. Um, and that was, I think, because I'd stopped. I stopped and I literally stopped. The energy... It was like a tap got turned off. I'd had demonic energy and the tap turned off and it was off for months. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but the second half of the book focusing on, focuses on different ways of, of managing the depression. And, and I want to come on to the, the jam jar. Just, just this relates to the first part, though. Talk to, me, talk to me about the guilt thing and the guilt experiment. Because oh, with um, in uh, the, uh, the Maudsley. Yeah, well, yeah, I thought that was, I don't know what Jeff thought, but I thought that was really, really sort of interesting. What this was, this was about was, um, it's an experiment that's going on at the Maudsley. Um, by a, a guy called Roland Zahn, who's a really smart guy, who's a you know psychiatrist, and they're doing this experiment. It's essentially, it's quite hard to explain, but essentially, you go in an MRI, and they ask you, they they've got this thing. I haven't got a clue how it works, but they've got this thing. They can they can map how your different parts of your brain are talking to each other, and in so doing, they can work out various things that are going on inside your mind. Now, his view, and I think it's a fairly, you know, widely accepted view, is that that sometimes, you know, guilt is at the heart of people's, you know, bad feelings about themselves or bad feelings that turn into depression and, and anxiety. So he asked me to think of things that might make me feel guilt. And I chose two things. Donald, my brother, um... And I think the guilt of that is the kind of survivor guilt. You know, why did he get schizophrenia, but I didn't? Why did, why did I have a great life and a really successful career, but he didn't? Why has his life ended early, but mine hasn't? That kind of thing. And the second thing I chose was the kids, just, you know, my three children. Guilt about maybe not always being there for them, even though I think they would actually say that I have been there for them most of the time when I've needed to be. But, you know, I felt that often I wasn't. And so what you do, you go into this um, MRI and you're lying there and you can see this kind of, it's like a, a, a kind of tube and it's, it's got this colour thing in it and you can, you, you, your aim is to use your mind, which is changing what's going on inside here, and you're trying to get this thing up to the top. It's like, and the more, the higher it goes the better you're dealing with the feelings. Don't ask me how it works. I haven't got a clue. So what happens then is you go in the thing and they ask you to do these, these um, mental arithmetic things. You take numbers away backwards and that's all about taking your mind off everything else and you do that. And then suddenly one of the words will flash up. The word Donald would come up and I'd be lying there 
And I think, you know, I'd say, yeah, I do feel guilty. There was that time, do you remember that time I was in a meeting with Tony and Donald phoned me and, and I said, I'll call you back, but then I forgot and I didn't. Or there was that time when actually he ran up really big gambling debts and I, and I was fed up of paying them off. So I said, no, I'm not doing it again. And, you know, and so this stuff goes through your head. And as, the, as you're thinking that, you see the barometer comes right down like this. And then you say, oh, you look at it and you go, oh, shit. So I said, and then I started having this conversation with Donald inside the thing. I started talking to him in the thing. And I said, anyway, Donald, I'm really sorry. I wish you were still here, I'm, you know, but, and I, I do feel bad from time to time. And, and then he would say in my head and sometimes out loud through my mouth, uh, he would say, I oh, don't be so ridiculous. You know, I had a great life considering I just got a shit deal. And it would have been a lot worse if I hadn't had mum and dad, hadn't had a you hadn't had the rest of the family, da 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 and, and suddenly, this thing started to go... So you could say it's just a kind of, well, that's a sort of positive thinking type thing. But when you actually sit down with the guy and he explains the science to you about that happens, it then, it gives you that confidence then to do that sometimes when you, when you, you know, when you're feeling overwhelmed by those sorts of feelings. And... and- that's that's one of the techniques that you write about in the book. However month, many months on we are at this point from you trying these different things. I know there was the BBC documentary. How, how many of those techniques or which of those techniques are you still actively using or, or you know, what, what do you think worked for you? That's really interesting. So, well, one of them I can't use because I did this thing where I had this sort of mild electric shock. Electric, right. Well, yeah. I, so I, I don't do that. Um, I think some of the stuff that I learnt through, for example, talking to the guy about your blood and looking after the quality of your blood, and, and that relates to things like diet and sleep and exercise and essentially lifestyle issues, I think that I learnt a lot about the link between the mental and the physical, which I, I tried to, to use. Um I think the of, of, of the other stuff, the I mean, Ed's mentioned a couple of times this thing about the jam jar. That's the big one for me. But this was a woman in Canada. She's British, but she lives in Canada. And I went to see her in Canada. And she's a geneticist. She's a genetic counsellor. And she says, look, look depression is not like uh, any, any mental illness. It's not like Huntington's disease. There's not a kind of genetic thing there. You might have genetic vulnerability if you're from a family of alcoholics. You know, that will have an impact, but it's not inevitable it's not automatic and she said basically the best way to think of your mental health is to think about yourself and your life as a jam jar okay so she said down here is a sediment which is your genes nothing you can do about it never going to change they are what they are and that will have a very big effect upon who you are what sort of life you lead that's big okay but it's not everything we're not just our genes the rest of it is your life and that is a mixture of experiences that flow in and flow out, good and bad. And most stuff we don't remember, it just goes in and it goes out. Some stuff stays and it's really good. Some stuff stays and it's bad. And what happens, she says, if your life becomes unmanageable, is it essentially the, the jam jar explodes. And that comes out in all sorts of different ways. It can be anything, mental illness, physical illness, just collapse, whatever. And she said, we spend all our time, the Freudians down here with the kind of, you know, genetic stuff, the, the, psych, the, 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 the psych, psychoanalysts and the, and the sort of psychologists and the coaches and all that, they're up here with the what did you do last Tuesday and how did you feel kind of thing. 
And she says it's actually missing the point that what you should be doing is thinking, how do you grow your jam jar so as you can get more life in it? And basically, it's a way of you saying to yourself, what are the things that you need for good for your good mental health? So I started with what I called FFF, which was Fiona Family Friends. Then it was uh, MA, Meaningful Activity Paid. Meaningful Activity, but you make a living. Meaningful Activity Unpaid, which is stuff like, you know, campaigning, whether it was the People's Vote campaign that didn't win or it was mental health campaigning, whatever it might be. And then you go into what I would call the kind of the fixed things, which are like diet, sleep, exercise. Really, really, really important. Really important. And then into all the things that are very personal to you. So, for example, I would have bagpipes in there because I played the bagpipes, I listened to the bagpipes, I'd have music more generally. Burnley is a big thing for me. I mean, it's a big, big part of my kind of psychology and everything else. Um, Creativity, curiosity, um, you know, and lots of different... And I suddenly realised I'm kind of up here with my jam jar and I haven't even mentioned antidepressants. And what happens to me now, it hasn't been so good in the last last bout I had, but I've several bouts since then where it's really helped me. When if I've felt the depression coming on, I've thought, right, be really nice to Fiona today. Whatever you're doing, be really, really nice to Fiona. Phone the kids, make sure they're okay. Meaningful activity, do some fucking work and do it now and do it well. And then, and then so I went through, I'll go through them one by one. So like little things, listen to music, not the news. If I'm get, if I'm getting, if I'm on a plunge, Listen to music, not the news. Read a book, not newspapers. Do the things that you, you know, don't eat sweets. Don't drink. Eat well. Eat loads of fruit. Drink loads of water. These are sort of, and, and, and what happens with me, like the, when I got into this bad bout recently, I tell you how bad it was, I thought, fuck it, none of that's going to work, right? But most of the time, that's what I and I do, and it does work. And it's it's it seems like a it's a technique that's worked brilliantly for you. Something I was interested in is a lot of the book you write about this psychiatrist David, who you've spent many hours uh, with over the years. He's he's sort of got your medication just right. He's investigated your subconscious. You seem to have a very intense relationship with him. When you discover this jam jar, you know, twelve months, two years ago, whatever it was, did did you not feel like slightly resentful? towards him and think well why didn't you just tell me about this 15 years ago no because i think yeah god i hadn't thought of that you know <laughs> you know <laughs> i've wasted all this time on david bloody sturgeon um, every time either my wife or i have a therapy session the first thing we say to each other afterwards is oh are you fixed now <laughs> <laughs> no i'll tell you why because i think it was i think that happened at the right time for me you think right. about it, I think I made that programme because I thought with David, I've really, I've made massive strides. He's been incredibly helpful, but I wonder if I need to try and go a bit deeper. And that means going to look around for different things. And, you know, and in the meantime, make a TV programme as well. And, and it is worth saying, isn't it, that you continue to take medication? I do, yeah, I do, yeah, I do. Every day. Um, and and so- funny enough, it's interesting, Jeff just said about, you know, David, sort of, when I was really bad in that recent bout, uh, I upped the medication for 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 a while um, because he thought. Did that, that help? I think it did. I'm look. I'm out of it now. Yeah. So I think it did. You never know. You don't know, do you? 
Um, and that's the thing, I, one of the things I really like about David is he never says, do this and this will happen. He says, well, look, you know, should we give it a go? It's a bit of an experiment, not sure. We can't be 100% sure, but let's give it a go. Although he has made some suggestions you haven't taken him up on. He, he suggested has. you get Tony and Gordon into one of your therapy sessions. He did. He did. He, he, he thought he actually, he said at one point, he actually said at one point, look, you know, I'm sick to death of hearing this because all I ever do is you come here and you talk about the pressures that they're putting under you and the relationship between them causing you grief and can't sleep and all this sort of stuff. You know, why don't you bring them here and we'll try and sort them out together. Ed, Ed, how do you think Gordon would have reacted if Alistair had said, Gordon, will you come to a therapy well, session with me? Well, it's funny you should say that. It wasn't exactly a therapy session. We did once do a sort of team bonding away day. Gordon's team and, and Tony's team, the, the big mistake we made was that Tony wasn't there. And basically, Tony absolutely, it was all sort of quite, it wasn't sort of trying to make up. It was more what should Labour be for and all of that. And then Tony concluded that the sort of Marxists had taken over his staff do you remember Alistair? i do yeah and, and then there was a sort of high noon summit where he sort of had to say i mean look you know i understand all this but no that's know, right T- tony I'm, a bit, th- I'm a little uncomfortable with some of it tony, uh, tony thought that peter peter hyman and i and and, and who else involved that peter philip and we, we Trump, i think we and we basically came back and yeah gordon's right let's all go and be total lefties and <laughs> lead the revolution can I just ask you about winners? Because I thought I've been thinking a lot about winners since I read the book. You wrote a book about winners. You're sort of quite obsessed with winning. And I'm not trying to do pop psychology here, but how much do you think sort of perfectionism and a sense that even doing your best is not good enough is part of all this? Yeah, totally. It's a big, well, not totally. It's a big part of it. It's a big part of it. I think I, I get very frustrated if I don't, if things aren't going the way I want them to go. You know, Fiona says in, in the thing that she's written, that she, she, one of the things she finds difficult about me is that I, I, I like to have control of the space that I'm in. And that's, you know, that's very difficult in something like politics because you're dealing with so many different characters and issues and, and so forth. And it's an out-of-control world, as, as I know, and you know, it's a world you ca- simply cannot control. Well, you can't, you can't have... You certainly can't have total control, and and I am a bit of a, a bit of a control freak. I, I think the other thing about winning is that I am, you, I think you're right. This that, you know the reason I wrote that book about winning. I am obsessed about winning, but I, I I think that that is definitely a part of it, and and I don't think I can ever. I don't think I'll ever cure that. Maybe, but I, will. but I suppose what I wonder is whether you think ill of people who don't win, and therefore think ill of yourself, therefore. Because nobody can ever win all the time. No, I don't think... Uh, no, I think... Um, I don't think ill of losers. I, I, I do think that... I, I, think, I think all of us should strive to make the most of what we are and what we have. I can't not strive to achieve different things because I, it, it's a compulsion. But isn't striving... Isn't, but isn't there a really interesting thing here, which is that I'm asking about winners... And you're saying you can't not strive, but striving is different from winning. Well, it is, but yet we've already talked about the fact that when we won the election in 1997, I, I was suddenly plunged into gloom. Was it because I actually, we've won that, and now what's the next thing? And the, thing, the other thing is that the, David, the psychiatrist, he talks to me about me having this demon inside me. And I always used to think, you know, we talk about the demon drink. You get that. 
the demon drink. You know, it's the drink that's the demon. But he says, my demon, and this is why it was so difficult, say, when you were trying to get me involved or when Gordon was trying to get me involved or when Tony was trying to keep me long after I wanted to go, the demon was saying, yes, do it. I was saying, no, this is dangerous. This is not going to be good for you. The demon was saying, do it. You need to do that because you need validation. You need power. You need to be at the center of things. You need to be able to create things. And I will sometimes say to him, but what's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting to do that? And he will say, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do it. But if it's going to damage you, your health, your life, your relationships, your family, it's a bad thing. And here's what's fascinating to me. So, so that that behavioural pattern that you've just described, like it's it's a, a common trope in psychoanalysis that we don't necessarily seek out what is best for us, but we seek out what is what feels familiar, and what feels familiar is usually something that can be traced back to your childhood. But for for all your sort of investigation into your own mental health, you you seem uninterested unwilling i don't know what it is you know i know your psychiatrist wants you to go to a scottish croft on your own and let this stuff bubble out but you 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 seem to think that your childhood isn't really a factor in all of it no i think it look, it's definitely a factor but what i don't think is that there's some kind of dark hidden secret that we've never uncovered um i mean fiona thinks it's weird for example that i don't have that many really clear memories of being a small child. But I don't think that's weird at all. I mean, I've got a bad memory now. I've got a bad memory of what I'm last week. I, I've also got a bad memory, and I only remember a few things from childhood. But then when I start thinking about them, the, all the ones that I remember are some way and related to my present-day neuroses or anxiety. Well, that's, that's interesting. So well, f- for me, they're not. If, I, if, I, if you were to say, right, what's, if I were to say now, memory of my mum, memory of my mum is of my mum whistling and singing in the kitchen. Main memory of my dad going round on his rounds when he was a vet in the car thinking this is really exciting, we're going to go and look at a horse. Uh, main, main, main memories of my, of my brothers uh, and my sister, really positive, warm, positive. You know, so main memory of sort of real excitement as a child, going to Burnley. Memories of school, being top of the class and but, being really but, but happy yet about it. you still access that memory of yourself sitting on that rock thinking this is it, yeah, I'm alone, I'm alone from now on. So it's, it's and, 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 and that's true. So, But my point is, yes, it can relate back to your childhood, but I think it's really interesting. Ed started off by saying, how important was that event in 1986? And I think that's where I go back, because that's where the pieces all broke up. And they literally broke up inside my head. But if I go back to all the things that were going in back inside my head, most of them actually were related to my life at that time. It was about work, it was about politics, it was about music, it was about Fiona. But it's, there's, it's interesting, you know, and I, I think I wrote about this in the book. My first, when I came out of hospital in Scotland after my breakdown, and I then I ended up seeing this guy, these two psychiatrists at the Maudsley, and I ended up walking out because all they did was probe me about this thing, about my, feeling, my feelings about my mum. Like it was, there was something weird going on. I'm saying, what the fuck are you driving at? I remember saying to them, because I was with Neil Kinnock on the day of the breakdown, and it was the day that Olof Palmer, the Swedish Prime Minister, got assassinated. Do you remember? Yeah. yeah. So Neil, left-wing leader, 
there's quite a lot of security around. It's just obvious, you know, Swedish prime minister gets killed, Labour leaders out on the road. So just a bit of security around. So I remember saying to this um, <laughs> this psychiatrist, so, you know, um, so when I was having hearing all these noises in, in my head, these voices in my head, and one of the special branch guys came up to talk to me, right? And so this guy sort of, he says, what, what, what do you, that's really, really interesting. What do you think it says that, you feel there has to be an element of the special branch being in your breakdown. I said, sorry, he was the fucking special branch. <laughs> yes, yes, I know you think he was the special branch, but, you know, no, he fucking was the special branch, right? And it's like, so in the end, I gave up, I walked out. Uh, we should uh, we should let you go. Be- before we do... Um- just quickly, in, in writing this book, which, as, as I say, is just an extraordinary mental health autobiography, and uh, j- just in the, the the thing where you describe what it can feel like to open a curtain or a blind in your house in, in the morning is, is one of the best descriptions of, of living with depression that I've, I've ever read. I'm wondering what you hope readers will, will get out of it. I think two things, really. I think I, think, I hope that people who have depression and who get depression, I hope, it, I hope even if it's the blinds or it's the jam jar or it's... I hope they get something out of it that they then can use and I hope that it helps them. And I think for people who live with people who get depression, I hope it helps them better to understand and maybe to be a bit more tolerant and a bit more... I'm not saying... Listen, some people are brilliant, right? But a lot of people aren't. And I get this. I mean... When um, our son Callum was having real problems with alcohol, you know, I've had problems with alcohol and I found myself saying to him the things that I know from my own experience are the worst possible things you can say. Just don't have a fucking drink. Why are you going to the pub? Don't go to the pub. You don't need to go to the pub, right? So, (laughs) and it's the same with depression. I know that the worst thing you can say to somebody who's got depression is what have you got to be depressed about? It's just like every, if we were feeling out about buying some fruit the other day, and 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 I was really in the middle of this very very dark depression. And normally I'd have a bit of banter with this guy about football or something. I just didn't say anything. And so this guy says to me, "What's wrong with him then?" Joe, he's, he's in a really bad depression. And he literally said, "What's he got to be depressed about? I've got a great life, right?" And I was, if I'd had energy, I'd have kind of whacked him, but I didn't have any energy. Um, so it's like a hope that people can get that, that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say to somebody who's, you know, grabs their inhaler, you wouldn't say, what have you got to be asthmatic about? You know, if you've got somebody who suddenly goes, if Theresa May suddenly says, oh, I forgot to take my insulin, you wouldn't say, what have you got to be diabetic about? So I, I want that to happen as well. And I also want it to be really, really successful, which is why if you guys were to, able to sort of say to all of your... Listeners, you know, if you don't go and buy this book, you really have got something wrong with you. And, and obviously, Tony, there's a quote from Tony on the cover already, so I'm not sure I need Ed. But Jeff, you maybe, you know, a bit of a front cover quote might be good. You've not got a quote from the emissary from Planet Fuck then? No, no. But I'm glad that we've cleared up why he was the emissary from Planet Fuck. <laughs> it was because of his politeness, not because of his, uh, his fuckery. You feeling good about that, Ed? I'm feeling good. Great, Alistair. Thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us. 
And we should mention that if you or someone you know has been affected by the issues discussed by Alistair, we've put some links to sources of support in the description to this episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.